right, hello everybody. This is Alexander the Great, AKA Lead Pacer. I'm joined by our production guru, Lasad Corday, and our honored guest is Josiah Lippincott. Josiah, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for having me. I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity. Of course, I always love to talk about ideas that animate our the, you know, public discussion. So thank you for the yeah. platform. Well, we really appreciate it. You've been doing, in my view, you've been doing God's work for a while now. (laughs) And um, I've, you know, you really made a lot of, um, a lot of noise in Twitter. And then unfortunately we saw you take a little bit of a break, but now, and now you're back. But um, we'll get into that in a minute. I just want to start off and and get to know you a little bit better. Would you just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you were born, where you grew up, et cetera? Yeah. So I'm originally from California. Um, and, you know, was born and raised, well, wasn't born there, but I was raised there and um, in the Central Valley. Um, I joined the Marine Corps in 2016. I, I graduated from Hillsdale College with um, a bachelor's in politics. And then so I spent four years in the Marine Corps. Um, and then during that time, had a kind of an intellectual awakening of sorts, very helped, helped by uh, some of the teachers I had had in undergrad. So then I returned. Um, to the graduate program there at the college and focusing on foreign policy and the military, really working out what happened in the 20th century. How did we get to where we are now? Where are we going? I think that's a really important endeavor. And um, yeah, that's, I think the kind of the, the surface, the bird's eye view, but um, you know, went to Hillsdale basically twice as undergrad and then as grad student. Okay. Did, did you always want to be in, in the armed service? Since growing up, I mean, when did you first realize, hey, I, I th- this is what I think I want to do? When did that idea first come to you? No, actually, um, my um, my family does not have a long military history at all, and I'm really unusual for that reason. Mm-hmm. When I was in the Marine Corps, a lot of people had grandparents, uncles, uh, just brothers, all who had been in the military. Very, very common. So I was a, an oddity for that reason. I didn't decide, decide to join the uh, the Marine Corps until I was in college. Okay. Um, they had an officer Marine Corps recruiters were there at the school. And, you know, I really liked the uniform, the bearing. And I, I kind of had this thing in me that said, you know, I'm bookish by nature. And I wanted to do something that pushed me to the limits of what I thought I was capable of. So physically challenging and then demanding leadership. So, right. you know, when, and I, I was a, an athlete in high school as a swimmer, but not a team captain type. I wasn't like a team sports kind of guy. And I felt like that was something I hadn't done. So that was a, a big motivating factor that, you know, I think patriotism, too. I, I really was at the beginning very idealistic in the sense of I, I thought I could, you know, very distinct memories during the Iraq War of, uh, of a, a pretty liberal teacher of mine saying of all these, you know, conservatives singing along to Lee Greenwood music, but they don't want to go and fight and they don't want to serve. (laughs) And, you know, at the time I was kind of a basic, you know, Bush, my parents supported Bush. Um, You know, I supported the Iraq war. I mean, I was 13, so I'm not exactly responsible for the war, but I was a, I felt some burden of duty and um, that all kind of mixed together into why, why I decided to join. Yeah. And you're making me think about my upbringing too. You know, I remember my first election that I voted in was in 2004 and I was a little conflicted about it because I wasn't really sure why we went into Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, but yeah. my feeling at the time was there must be some knowledge and some uh, information that the administration was privy to that maybe superseded their rationale that they would put yeah. out to the public. 
And, you know, I voted for Bush was, was the first election I voted right. in. But I, I want to talk a little bit more about your process. So you've had this kind of, you know, classical upbringing and you were, yeah. you know, felt called to the service and that you could make a difference. Right. So you know, I, I believe, so you were in the peacetime military or Marine yeah. Corps, is that correct? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I never saw combat. Um, and that's part of why I think my perspective in a way is unique because America's military has been at peace since, I mean, there have been people in combat, but the general conventional forces have not been in significant deployments with significant combat since roughly around 2013. Depends on how you want to slice that, um, mm -hmm. slice that subject. But really, this is the dominant experience of the last decade is what I went through. And I think that people don't understand. And so I'm trying to provide some, some, you know, my personal experience is useful, but it's, I, I think the theoretical and intellectual insights that I've had that I really want to get out there. And I think it fuels what I'm doing politically on social media and, you know, bridging those gaps. And that's kind of, there's two separate but related projects going on here, the intellectual project and then the political project. And they're very much related, um, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, you know, there are some people in our corner of Twitter that want to burn everything down and start over and believe that the political process is hopeless, but they really have to work in conjunction with each other. Right. And, yeah. you know, we, we, we need to preserve, um, you know, some some parts of our institutions, you know, to move yeah. forward but, and you know, to be ordered to remake them. We can't have it all go to the ground. Yeah, there's a lot of debate about this. You know, what I have, I have radicalized on this question since, you know, the COVID stuff really radicalized me. I decided to go to the grad program pre-COVID. So mm -hmm. initially I was going to concentrate more historically. I wanted to leave the Marine Corps, give an account of the strategic and political problems that I saw in, in the Marine Corps and then with the American military as a whole. And I developed this with a mentor of mine here at the college. Um, in the process, you suddenly have COVID comes through and just mm -hmm. unleashes all of these ideological inclinations, um, critical race theory, all of a sudden these public schools are in the media, you have biomedical tyranny, you can't travel. My initial plan, which was to concentrate on um, you know, the, ja the Japanese side of the war, the, the Pacific in World War II, and so it's become subservient to this kind of radical political change that we're living through right now. And so really, I'm trying to balance these different intellectual, um, different intellectual challenges and, in, in, you know, in a way, trying to merge them together. And I think the, the broadest theme, and we can dig into this if you want, yeah. the, the COVID biomedical security state is, is um, related at its core to the post-1945 world order. They are fundamentally related. And when you start to see that and understand what that means, I think it becomes much more clear that there are some serious foundational problems with modern liberalism that go much deeper than the sort of Fox News, um, mm -hmm. you know, just, you know, and I'm not disrespectful, but the boomer crowd, like what they think about politics and what they think the problem is, it goes so much deeper oh, than they know. And the so- boomer cons. <laughs> right. They, in, many of whom are well-meaning. They love America. Right. They're not getting, there's a huge, huge problem that's just at the core of all of this. Um, yeah. And I would say it's, it's ideological conflict. It's, it's the radical change in warfare and the modern state that the Marxists give birth to. The Soviet Union, the birth of the Soviet Union, the Marxist-Leninists drive the 20th century. They are the, they are the villains. I think they're the villains of the 20th century. 
and they give birth to a just radical change that everyone buys into um, right. ideological warfare um absolute enmity you know the idea your enemy is a categorical enemy we got to wipe them from the face of the earth once that idea is injected into the bloodstream you so everything starts falling into place you're like gulag suddenly makes sense auschwitz makes sense firebombing german civilians makes sense uh nuking japanese civilians totally makes sense or you know the fdr administration running concentration camps boom it all fits <laughs> right. together you start mm -hmm. seeing these there's a there's a this problem here like you know it's it's not clear cut in the way that a lot of historians and a lot of commentators want to make it so that's my well, yeah and anyway, i want to hear i, I want to hear a little bit yeah. more about that because i look at you know the post world war ii world order um was was you know and that that's really the world that we're living in now you yeah. know my grandpa served in the pacific theater we talk about in japan he was a uh, b-25 bomber a mechanic actually you know, and he worked on those and, um, you know, told me stories, some stories he couldn't tell me, didn't want to tell me, but, you know, it was great to have someone that I could talk to and, you yeah. know, somewhat connected to that kind of war experience. Yeah. But, you know, these guys get back like him and they, they start families, they have kids, you know, we go into Korea, which is one of the, probably the forgotten war, the overlooked war. Um, but you know, it's kind of an age of a plenty, you yeah. know, it's, it's the, 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 the growth, you know, suburbs and a two-car garage and, you know, but then things start to change. But that, that's kind of my perspective. Then we yeah. kind of get into the, the mid-60s to late-60s yeah. when there were these huge seismic shifts, not only, you know, with, with the, you know, with the Immigration and Civil Rights Acts, but with, um, you know, the Cultural Revolution that happened in the late-60s. And that was, a, 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 to me, is what I kind of looked to is when things really started to change. But I'd love to hear your yeah. perspective. Um, when, yeah. when did, when did the roots of this Marxism, Leninism start to take hold here in the States? Yeah. So I would argue, well, I argue and I, I make this case, the 1960s birth a lot of the radicalism. You see it there, but it is a byproduct of the 1940s. And once you have that ideological turn really in the thirties and forties with the FDR administration, they reject the American founding, the American tradition, and they turn to a new way of understanding liberty and freedom. Um, mm -hmm. For one, FDR, his four freedom speech, really and, and gets into, you know, freedom means freedom from want, you, freedom from necessity. But the older American understanding is that necessity is what makes us free, that a being that doesn't have necessity doesn't have a reason to wake up in the morning and do things. Mm -hmm. So that attempt to liberate um, man from material conditions, the four freedoms, the material want, that's a really, I think, dramatic turn. But, and this is a deeper, there are you know, scholars who are much better on this and can really get into it. But I, I would say uh, what I see really striking is um, the union between the Soviet Union and the United States during World War II. That mm -hmm. is really dramatic. And it casts a dark shadow over that entire period. By 1941, Stalin had invaded as many countries as Hitler, but he had killed um, rough estimate about an order of magnitude more human beings. By that point, um, just through the purges, the starvation policies in the Ukraine, um, mass murder carried out in Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Poland, the, the Soviet Union invaded Poland in September of 1939. This gets totally memory hold in, in conventional accounts. So, to, to, to just narrow it down is 
this union between the Soviet Union and the United States was not an accident. There was a significant uh, turn toward communism among American intellectuals. And uh, top members of the FDR administration, Harry Dexter White and Harry Hopkins, were both basically communist agents. Uh, they had communist handlers. They favored the Soviet Union um, mm -hmm. and were fulfilling their policy aims. And so once you see the United States working not just to um, liberate, you know, it, the 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 lesser of two evils arguments i think has some has some problems there i mean stalin and hitler both very vicious men um the problem is is we empower the soviet union they take over eastern europe and then they take over the pacific they take over korea the korean war is a direct byproduct of the american unwillingness to accept a conditional surrender from the japanese and a conditional surrender by the way which we eventually accepted so basically, when you're asking this question, to, to sum it up, the 1960s are a direct byproduct of this radical turn in the American elite in the 1930s and 40s. And it's a byproduct of the war. And it unleashes these passions, um, an attack on Christianity, on public Christianity. Um, and I think this really boils down to opening uh, you know, this, this farce of saying that Stalin is somehow on the side of liberalism and democracy. That lie just animate has these dramatic profound consequences for the rest of the 20th century that's really interesting there's a lot to cover there yeah. I, I think about how fdr who was really like american royalty i mean he was in there for you know, elected to a fourth term um he probably you know could have been elected forever but he still looked as as one of the great presidents and i even hear people on the political right reference fdr and the new deal and what he did as as one of our great presidents in recent memory, and I've never really understood it. Yeah. Um, you know, and it really took us getting into a war, and that's a whole, we can go yeah. down the conspiracy rabbit hole in terms of the, the premise and context of, you know, how we entered World War II. Yeah. Um, that's that's a, probably another conversation. But um, I just, I've always been wondered why he was held in such esteem, um, because a lot of harm was done, and we never really got out of it. I mean, it was it was the 30s was were a really rough decade, yeah. And it took us entering the war and in, in late 41 uh, to kind of get out of that, right? Yeah. No, no. The, why why FDR remains a hero is a real is a real mystery. I think it's just this this guy. There there I think um, they discovered in the 1990s with the Venona decrypts about 200 members of the State Department under FDR were working with the communists, and that was beyond just. The Lynn Lease program, we started giving them aid in the summer and fall of 1941. While we were still allegedly neutral, this it's it's just really problematic. Why if the point of World War II was to prevent aggression, why were we giving so much aid to a tyrannical, mass murdering aggressor who had invaded all these countries? This question is not asked and it is certainly not answered. And when I brought it up, mostly mainstream scholars I once um, uh, Kagan, I think Robert Kagan. I asked him this question. He just basically called me a Nazi in front of, you know, 200 people, which is a lie. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. I don't care. I don't care. Profoundly don't care. I think he's I think that guy, among many neocons, has a lot to answer for. So, you know, well, I, don't have blood, I don't have blood on my hands from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. I can say that to my moral credit. I, I will have to answer for things at the day of judgment. I will not have to answer for shilling for wars that spent trillions of dollars and got thousands of Americans killed. I have yet I have yet to do that. Uh, to the extent that these guys have. So I consider myself uh, blessed in that regard. Well, I love hearing that. You're a man after my own heart. I, I, I think about 
Um, and I posted a little bit about it on Twitter. Yeah. But, you know, I had a cousin, uh, my first cousin died in Iraq in 2005 at one of these makeshift Air Force bases. I forget, the, I, I would try to pronounce the name, yeah. but I would butcher it like Al Tatakum or something like that. But he died um, basically washing a Hummer. And an open yeah. electrical line hit, you know, where he's washing the Hummer and he was electrocuted to death. And there was a big lawsuit with KBR and they were response, but they didn't sure. really have, they didn't really get penalized, to be honest with you. Yeah. They got away with, they got away with it because these, yeah. these, these issues were happening over and over. And it, it really, it, it tore his family apart, Josiah. Like him, yeah. he was 23 years old. He was in, yeah. in, engaged. He was, you know, in the military to help pay for college. He was a damn good guy. And all of a sudden he's gone. It tore the family apart. And I just think about, there are so many stories like that out there that it's not like how people idealize war and you, you're involved in some kind of an epic firefight right. or the last battle, you know, yeah. fighting to, to, to win the war. It's these very um, bizarre and brutal ways. And I have nothing but, um, you know, contempt for the people that took us into those conflicts. Yeah, and you should. And so, you know, the, the problem with making the historical argument that I'm making is you got to tie it all together. How did we get yeah. here? And the way, the easiest way to explain this is there are problems with the World War II narrative the resulting from the communists and Stalin uniting with the so-called liberal West. Okay, if they're so liberal, what's with this mass murdering dictator being brought to the table? That's a real problem. Yes. The, and then you have the intentional targeting of civilians. You're killing people who are not combatants. The older Christian, European, Western way of war just chucked out the window during World War One and World War Two. Huge problem. And I think that moral degeneracy leads to sexual failure, the collapse of the family. These things are intimately related. Once you go down this path, there are these unintended consequences. Uh, to give one example, the atomic bomb, within a certain radius of the uh, atomic bomb, pregnant women would have spontaneous abortions up from the radiation in their bodies. So in a way, the atomic bomb, even when it didn't kill a pregnant woman, would still kill the child. It kills the, the child in the womb. So there's, I believe, a spiritual parallelism, a connection between the atomic bombing and then partial birth abortion. You, wow. If you as a civilization will do the one, you're going to do the other one. They are connected. You are start unleashing the tendency toward barbarism, and then, you re then, the, then the train comes off the rails. And um, the post-1945 economy, the destruction of the American heartland, the industrial heartland, here in Hillsdale, looking at the flour mill downtown. It's gone, right? They don't employ anyone anywhere. They don't employ anyone there anymore. And you're realizing this is the Morgenthau plan for America. The Secretary of Treasury during the war, um, Henry Morgenthau um, Jr., his father was also a prominent uh, American official. Henry Morgenthau wanted to deindustrialize Germany, which would have meant basically genocide because you couldn't sustain the population on a, on a pre-industrial agricultural economy. But that's what he wanted to bring to Germany. And I will say this, in a way, the Morgenthau plan for America, the Morgenthau plan for Germany was instituted in America, that the things that the, uh, the Western liberal expert class wanted to do abroad, they've done here. And I think that to bring to the current day, you know, how did we get into Iraq and Afghanistan by this met the metaphor, these people are Hitler. And once you have this sort of 
mythological justification for this kind of brutal war and imperial, I would think imperial aggressive war, you get, you get it, you get more of these conflicts and then the Americans pay the price. And so my, what I view as my project is tying all of this together and then driving the stake in the heart of the system. And that's what I, that's what I want to do with my writing and my, and my, um, you know, social media presence. Yeah, we and I, and I want to talk more about that. You know, you're you're making me. You know, you're stirring up all these different thoughts and directions we could go yeah. in. But I'm trying to stay focused here. Sure, sure. But I, but I think about how when I look at the West, you know, the Western world, and I look at America, it seems like you know, a, a civilization that's exhausted and just people that are broken. And there there are you know plenty of theories, and Pat Buchanan writes about it. How um, you know the two world wars really took the wind out of our sails and so many yeah. brave, decent young men on both sides, because not, it's not, yeah. people are just, you know, doing what they need to do for their country. Uh, they're not necessarily making those decisions, but so many good, brave young men died, probably a lot of the best. And now we kind of have a different kind of person, you know, since then. But um, yeah. anyway, that, that's one theory. I'd like to hear a little bit more about you know, what you're doing on social media, what yeah. you're writing about, what projects that you, you have in the fire right now. Yeah. So there, there are a couple, and I think I'll, I'll talk more about them as they come out. But basically I, I kicked a hornet's nest with that woke military stuff that was not intentional. I had like 150 followers on Twitter and then General Donahoe, God bless him, um, responded to me directly. because so I was asking him, about the COVID policy stuff. And that's, you know, seems separate, but I think is related to the themes I've already talked about. He's basically saying, you know, you are a conspiracy theorist working with Russia because you're asking these questions about our policies and you're just illegitimate. So asking about suicides, you know, more service members dying of suicide in one quarter, the increase in suicides, the, the difference between 2019, 2020 in one quarter, one three-month period, higher than all the total COVID deaths in the military, and then just denounced, okay, you're a bad person. So that really launched this presence. I was working on these ideas, but no one, I was writing a little bit, you know, for American greatness, not getting a ton of traction. All of a sudden, I'm out there, and then I'm, I was fighting with these people hard, and yeah. um, we can talk about some of that. Some people did some nasty stuff um, in terms of leaking stuff from my personnel file, uh, bombarding my family with um, prank calls or um, spam calls, um, sending death threats, all this kind of stuff, all of which I don't care. I think the ideas are more important than the opposition and they need to get out there. So what I've been doing is I was trolling these people hard and being like, mm -hmm. you are wrong. You're what you're doing is sick, but then trying to try to take the, the Nietzsche point, you have to have a, a, you have to write in blood with a kind of playfulness, i.e. the idea has to be serious but then you give it this humor, this liveliness, this vitality, and um, very successful. I was getting probably eight, I think I was eight million hits, uh, eight million hits a month on average there wow. by December. Yeah, but yeah. then the last tweet thread that I wrote before Twitter yeeted me into the better beyond <laughs> got uh, five million hits by the when I checked it before I was uh, permanently booted. But it was like I said. A lot of traction. People wanted to hear this and they were like, this is really important. And um, just really put a nail, you know, you're as a writer, as a, someone who's interested in policy, I'm limited by, um, you know, who will publish me. And if I can't get published, then it makes it hard to get these ideas out there. That's a, it's a really censorship is the regime's most important weapon.
Yeah, it is. And I like how you're wrapping these very important messages with with humor and irreverence. Right. And there's like sure. a trolling aspect of yeah. that. And that's what yeah. is going to get you going viral on social media. That's yeah. why I think so many people appreciated what you're doing. Yeah. Right. So um, what, how big did your Twitter account get up to before I, you get you got the kibosh put on you? I had 13,000 followers and I was gaining about 2,500 a month. And you know, getting about, I think it was average about 8 million hits. There's a, and, and that was, you know, a lot of that was just, I don't tweet full time. You know, mm -hmm. I, I was on there and having a, a splash for sure, but it was not, um, you know, without a lot of institutional support either. It was just me and the other accounts. And what I want to say is, you know, I had my face on my account and I was obviously being pretty open about who I was and the ideas. Like, I don't care. I'm going to say what I'm going to say. I'm not beholden to anybody. You really, I get paid sometimes for some articles. It's not that much money. That's not why I'm doing this. Um, and there's a lot of guys like that. There's another account who was also banned, Russian Cosmist. That dude was just making <laughs> in, yeah. enormous numbers. Martin and I, between, I was just, Martin is, I think, just a, a better uh, poster that just sheer, uh, it was witty, just really has a knack for it. Mm -hmm. And this is just kind of like a guy. He's just out there. You know, we're going back and forth and realizing how is it that just people i'm not in power i'm not in the centers of power but what we're doing is getting traction here and i think it's just the power of these ideas and there's a market for them and if we just can get to that point where they're out there it i think it, it will go viral it can't help it i think no I, I think so too i mean you know twitter is so impactful if you think about 38 million daily users on twitter in the united states out of 330 yeah. 40 million people so you're looking at one out of nine people there, and it's definitely yeah. a younger audience. Yeah. But to have that kind of, but you, but it just shows that there's this latent underlying demand for people that they want it, they want the unvarnished, uncensored truth from people like yourself. They're yeah. yearning for it. They we need it, and yeah. and that's why you exploded. The problem is, you know, Twitter is, um, you know, it, it really is the preferred platform for people that are verbally adept, and it has the audience. I think these yeah. big tech platforms. Yeah have been hardwired into our brains in terms of just, you know, how our psychology works and how we maneuver the internet. Like YouTube is the homepage for, you know, for, for videos and Twitter for people that are great at writing pithy content. Sure. So the question is, what can we do now? I, I know you're, um, you know, you're out there, you know, yeah. on Twitter a little yeah. bit, but yeah, you got to kind of build back up and then yeah. they know you're there. I mean, that's another question for you, Josiah. Like they know, you know, they have to have an idea, but they just, I guess they just want to knock you down and make you go work, yeah. work it, you know, build well, your up again. Twitter, Twitter has, you know, it's got two things. On one hand, it wants users who are really interesting, who write new and exciting content that people want to read, just at a business level, which guys like Martin, um, you know, I think others like Zero HP Lovecraft, to, awesome. I, mean, I, I can't, I can't possibly get all these guys, but, right. um, I, I, you know, I think I'll, I'll, I'll include myself there as well. Um, uh, that there, you know, people want to read this stuff. If, if I was allowed, and just if if you know, let's take the 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 basic view, um, marketplace of ideas. If and in a marketplace of ideas, people want to read what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there the market there is no free market of ideas in America. There's a totalitarian central market that gets to decide, or it's trying to decide who gets audiences. Um, and that's a real problem is how do we break out of this? And I think a lot of that, I think there's a value in staying on Twitter and on social media, even knowing I'm never going to be a big mainstream account. I can't. I've been banned. 
I can't put my face on that account. Um, and it'll probably get suspended at some point. I don't care. Um, I have a second phone. You factory reset it. You re-download Twitter. <laughs> right. It's very easy. Like, right. you get a new number from your phone. It's like, you can do it. It's expensive, but you can do it. Um, so, but the spiritual war, it's a spiritual war. And we have to keep fighting. I have to keep fighting. And eventually we have to turn this into policy. And that's where it's, you take the spiritual war on social media and then you mm -hmm. push it into, okay, what do we do now? So I, I was able to kind of interact with guys like um, Blake Masters, Anthony Sabatini, Joe Kent, um, even J.D. Vance. I know he was aware of what I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know if I still have reach with those guys. I haven't reached out to them since I've been back. But I do know they picked up on there's, there's, there's energy in these ideas. And um, that's a hopeful thing. And I hope that will continue, um, you know, no, as, it, as we look forward. It, no, it is. Do you, do you see any usefulness in some of these other platforms that I don't want to say they're echo chambers, but they're more right leaning like, you know, Gitter, Gab, Rumble. And that's actually one that we're going to be using a little bit. Sure. Um, do, yeah, do you yeah. see a usefulness in those? Do you spend much time there? You know, I, I'm, I'm funny as a social media user. I really don't consume a whole lot of content outside of very, I mean, like I'm just, I, you know, the grad program, I'm doing reading. Um, so I haven't used a lot of those other platforms, but do I think there's value there? Yes. But the great thing about Twitter is you can do battle with liberals all the time and you can you can get them to engage, which blows up the audience. So the, they have gate kept audiences. And what you're trying to do is get past the gatekeepers. And you there's all kinds of ways. What you really need is to provoke a response and you need to do it in the public square where people are watching. The value of these other platforms is there is usefulness in an echo chamber in a sense of the American right is pretty fractured and. It needs to develop some of these ideas. I mean, I think for the first time in the post-war era, you have a prominent populist right-wing, truly conservative movement in America. It doesn't look like National Review, Bill Buckley. I think a lot of that was astroturfed and not, not really important. Um, but I just agree. now, you're starting to see it's developing. But what it needs is an intellectual framework to think about these problems. Like, what are we going to do? How do you take... Um, to use the, the language, the internet autism and turn it into policy. And that's where, <laughs> yeah. that's where these platforms can be useful. It's just this internal working through ideas, thinking through and getting at truth, making friendships, all that very, very important. Um, and I think that's useful regardless of where it takes place. But Twitter is special because you can, you can engage with liberals there and get an audience um, of, of, that includes just everyday Americans. I think that's really important. Yeah, I, I think so too. But you know, I think you're you're hitting on something really important here yeah. about how you know I look at the right. It's it's very fragmented. People tend to atomize. They get into you know Spurgey style debates about you know the ideological nuances of this or that, and they just tear each other apart. And at the end of the day, what are we left with here? Like we've got yeah. to build some kind of cohesion and continuity and start finding areas of common ground and building on those. Like, let's agree on a yeah. few basic principles, right? And then we can do something instead of this guy's not perfect. So he's a piece of crap and nobody should pay attention yeah. to him. You know what well, I mean? Yeah, no, this Trump era was just perfect for this. Trump centered this, all this energy on himself. Then it was a practical thing. Get Trump elected, you know, and it very simple. And it was just this really, I remember that time. I was not a prominent. I wasn't in an on. Um, I was reading. I was following, but I wasn't con contributing. And I remember just how uh, hopeful and optimistic it was. There, there just really is no substitute for winning. 
you got to win. You got to get even a small victory is so important. And so a lot of people want to have um, they want to have a solution for all of our problems. And I think you really concentrate on winning one battle, like winning. Uh, Nietzsche has this great line, uh, and thus spoke Zarathustra. You need one virtue as opposed to many. Laser focus on one thing, and maybe you can make a real difference um, in that one area. And um, the Trump in 2015-16 showed what the American right was capable of, really could win. And that's why the last five years, they've just been freaking out because it just, they realize this is very powerful and it's a huge problem. Um, and they, they're trying to tamp it down. I don't think they'll be successful, but you, we, there's, a, there's a fight to be had here. Yeah, it is. I mean, we've got to take the shackles off. And, you know, I've been, I, I think it, this really crystallized for me during the Trump era. I mean, I remember mm-hmm. whenever I wanted the guy to run since 2011 when he gave a speech at CPAC. Yeah. yeah. I thought, I thought this guy's got the goods. He's talking about the things that really, talking about China and trade and speaking to that, yeah. you know, that machinist or engineer or factory line worker in the Rust Belt, which I had spent a lot of time in Michigan and Ohio. And I thought, these guys. Sure. They hear this like this. This really yeah. resonates with them. Yeah. And, you know, you have some kind of evangelical preacher type politician from the South. It's not going to register the same way. Right. No. So, um, you know, but, but the big takeaway was with Trump is there is a lot of opposition within our own party. How long is it going to take to really uh, overhaul the Republican Party and get the right kind of people in the key positions of power? Well, it could be very quick. I don't think it could take very long at all. It could just be like, boom, one day we're, you know, there's pride flags and BLM everywhere. The next day there's not because <laughs> that's no longer in favor. Um, right. Political change is hard. So I think a lot of people have it like we're going to march through the institutions, to which I say, no, you're not. Um, but you could do real damage to them. So what I've said is I, there's no one's going to infiltrate and take over the military and make it not cringe. There's a lot of reasons for that. Strategic, political, ideological. But what we totally can do is just crater the approval rating for the military, which has the has all these follow-on benefits of suddenly you can't use it to wage stupid wars in Ukraine. You can't use it to oppress Americans. You know, yeah. I, I've stated before, the goal is 40% approval. Well, then, you know, it's not, there's more disapproval than approval. How are you supposed to use that to do your bidding if you're Biden? Um, so yeah, I think the answer to your question is the right needs to find new leaders, leadership and real leaders. And I don't mean cringe, astroturfed, uh, pay pay to play or, you know, uh, token, whatever. whatever. They're always searching for these kind of grifter types. I mean, real leaders. And someone quoted on Twitter many years ago, he said, um, you know, I'm paraphrasing, when when Caesar appears, he will not be trying to sell you a T-shirt. I'm like, exactly, right? <laughs> this is, that's exactly how that works. He's not going to be trying to sell you something. You know, you're going to be like, dang, I got to follow this guy. Um, and I think that's uh, that's kind of what the right needs to look for right now. I think so. I mean, that, that person will emerge because, yeah, we've had enough of the people trying to sell Chotskys and T-shirts and, and they still get. Unfortunately, it's a very easy road. They're kind of put to the front of the line like, hey, here's a new salesman and they get propped up and then eventually people figure it out and they keep putting the new person out there. Yeah. I'm yep. sick of it. Yeah. But, yeah. Listen, I, um, I want to talk to you a little, do a little bit of a non sequitur here. Sure. Somewhat related because I've heard you talk a little bit about. Uh, China and what they're doing with information warfare. Um, yeah. I, I think I heard you mention about how during the o- Obama administration, you know, we went from 100,000 to 300,000 <laughs> Chinese yeah. students. So yeah. I, I'd i like to hear a little bit about, you know, learn a little bit about what China is doing with information warfare here. 
And, um, you know, how effective are they and what can we do about it? Oh, I mean, the most obvious thing to do about China is stop helping them. Yeah. Boom. Here's yeah. a solution. Right. You know, I would there's a great book called The Hundred Year Marathon. Um, and I'm going to forget the author's name. Um, uh, Michael. Uh, I included in the you can include it in the description or whatever. We'll, put it year marathon. Yeah, we'll figure it out. We got it. Hundred Year Marathon. Great book. What he says there is China had so much American aid from Deng Xiaoping took over after Mao, um, basically had capitalism with Chinese characteristics, which basically meant China was become going to become the world's supplier of all these goods. And um, it was going to use American technology to do it. And mm -hmm. like Goldman Sachs helped um, China get on the global accounting standard, which allowed them to do uh, enter the global markets in ways they previously weren't able to. American universities educate the Chinese elite. So when China wins in the information warfare sector, it's because, you know, they, no one has the willingness to stand up to them and be like, look, uh, we don't care. We, 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 we are not your friend. Because the thing is, China is the United States elite, the elite's most important ally. Without yeah. China, you can't crush Heartland America. You can't crush those manufacturing centers. You can't flood the country with cheap shit. You can't flood it with fentanyl so that you can get all these people on drugs. And I think whether it's intentional, it's subconscious, does not matter. The, our elite wants ordinary Americans to die, wants you to go away. And China is helping every step of that process. So the easy way is to say, we are not going to do what the Chinese tell us to do. We're not listening to lockdown propaganda. And, and Trump was so right in the spring of 2020. I do, he was like, by Easter, I want to reopen the country. And I don't think we should have ever shut down, but he was right about that. But then all these people around him and the experts and the bureaucracy and the admin, they all, oh, we, we got to do health, you know, crazy Chinese style tyrannical measures. So the way to win the information warfare is kick out the Chinese who are being educated in our universities, stop allowing them to buy American property, um, put slow, slowly rising tariffs on Chinese manufacturing to bring those jobs back to America. And then just make really clear, uh, we are not your friend. Um, we don't want to go to war with you and really can't because of nuclear weapons. But um, just make very clear, like, no, we don't want to live in Chinese despotism. That's not that's not the American way. That's, a, you know, easy first steps right there. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, we got to put the worker first again. And let's be very clear about something. There's an elite sector of people that it, intentionally use Chinese slave labor to make goods and undercut the American worker. Yeah. They've 100%. been doing it for 30 plus years. I've ha I had a startup making a product in the plastics business, in the beverage business. Guys, it's almost impossible to have a U.S.-based supply chain. And I tried yeah. to do it for patriotic reasons and, and other reasons. And I just, I, I can attest to how difficult it is. It's a Herculean task. And the only way we can, do, we can really bring American manufacturing back is we've got we've to put the screws to China. There's no other way around it. And it's, yeah. it's taking too long. Well, the, and the, the complaint I have about a lot of China hawks, and I just, yeah. I want to lose my mind when these people talk. They're like, we really got to keep China out of the South China Sea. It's like, listen to what you're saying. South China Sea. They're, they're right there. And, and I think to, to connect the, the China question to the military question, the American military cannot fight a conventional war with China. Period. The existence of nuclear weapons prevents decisive conventional conflict. The existence of insurgency means we can't take over random third world countries like Afghanistan or Vietnam, and we can't win a nuclear war with China because there's no way to win a nuclear war. You just get slaughtered. So the way what we really need is statecraft. 
the way to defeat China is stop helping them, bring back jobs, and then um, just be aware of what they are and be like, we're not helping you. Uh, we're opposed to your way of life. We don't want to import it. And that means no more Chinese immigration, period, for 10, 20 years. Nope, yeah. nope, we're not doing it. You guys, nothing against you people. We're not going to, um, you know, uh, you know, decry China or say it should be wiped off the face of the earth or something like that. Just like, nope. You know, every time you see Chinese spying scandal, it's always someone who is Chinese. They're ethnically Chinese. Right. It's like this is the most obvious thing in the world. China is a regime. It is an ethnostate. And American just policymakers are just uh, completely out to lunch on this. Just minds are gone. Yeah. They just do not get how this works. Well, listen, if you're a dork like Eric Swalwell, you don't care if she's a spy. You just want to get laid. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> the guy's a loser. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, oh, you know, it's like my Chinese driver. It's like, oh, I don't care. Black guy would never spy for China. Yeah. It's like, are, are you a moron? Like, no, yeah. that's to say they're probably Chinese Americans who really love the country. Uh, that's that's great. But we have to think seriously about foreign policy. And so random anecdotes, not helpful, not helpful here. You know, if yeah. you want to keep China out of Taiwan, then arm Taiwan with nuclear weapons, allow them to arm themselves with nuclear weapons. I can we can solve the American military presence in the Far East super simply. OK, Japan is going to develop nukes. We're going to make peace with North Korea and basically say we're going to open up your markets. We're going to instead of you being a, a Chinese client state. You know, there's a reason that China and North Korea, yeah. totally different countries. They're not the same. They, they oh, are not aligned yeah. in everything. Just but like, nobody can think this way. Do, do you remember what Trump was doing with, uh, with Kim Jong-un and talking about how North Korea could be like this tourist place? And he wanted oh, to help yeah. develop. Remember yeah, that? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so many other things during the Trump administration, it got memory hold. And sometimes I go back down memory lane. I'm like, God, this guy did so many amazing things all across the world. Trump's instincts. And, I mean, Trump's thinking his thought when he thinks and tries to articulate it, you know, I think he's really influenced by the people around him, but his gut instinct inclinations are generally on, on just on point. And North Korea, just a great example of Trump being like, why are we still here? What are we doing here? He's just asking yeah. the most basic question. And he got the word factory, but did get a, I think a really successful diplomatic um i mean we should establish i mean here let me say something radical on your on your podcast hopefully people will listen and publish breaking news here we breaking go news we, america should establish diplomatic relations with pyongyang there should be yeah. a north korean embassy in washington dc and an american embassy in pyongyang oh they're mean they're bad they kill people we kill people too right i think the american regime does all kinds of things i don't approve of but the point is North Korea is a nation. We are not, we should not be, we are not at war with them. We should not be at war with them. Does not serve our interest. So make peace. Let bygones be bygones. You really have to think critically about policy. And, but everyone in DC is unserious and, and the Georgetown foreign policy master's degree types, just almost universally stupid, dumb, legacy of failure, never punished for it. These people in a decent country would be uh, janitors in um you know middle school somewhere in the heartland not not making policy uh, no, I, I agree scale. we 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 have enabled emboldened um these midwit bureaucrat administ administrative type of people yeah 100%. it drives me insane and I, i've been in corporate america i've seen it happen there where we have really non-productive people uncreative people that have been elevated and there's almost kind of a self-selecting sociopathy or even psychopathy that these people are able to kind of keep rising and 
something's got to be done about it. They're insufferable to be around. Mm -hmm. They're killing us. It's time to start chopping off some dead wood, you know? Oh, yeah, but, 100%. Yeah, but I, I, so I, I want to make the most of your time. So I've got a couple sure. more things I yeah. want to talk to you about here. So, you know, national divorce is a term that's been popularized the last few years. Mm -hmm. And you're hearing it more and more and more about what is a could we have a national divorce? What does it look like? And I don't think anybody's really accurately defined it, but I just want to throw that term out there without trying to define it and ask yeah. you, are we going to have a national divorce? What does it mean? Just start riffing for us. Cringe. And you know, <laughs> the, the, the problem, the problem with yeah. national divorce is the left is not going to let us leave. Like that's, yeah. just, that's not how that's going to work. You know, they hate, you know, critical race theory makes clear. We just hate you because you're white. You're a white male. Your ancestors were here in the country. They may not have owned slaves. It doesn't matter. You're a racist. But what they really want is for you to be hitched to the plow and work to make their way of life possible. That's what the San Francisco, New York, Washington, D.C. elite want. They hate, the, they hate people like me, but they want us to sacrifice for them. That's totally obvious in the military. You know, you go to an infantry unit, it's like, well, there's a lot of white dudes here. Yeah, and we want you to go die in the Ukraine. Or we want you to go join the special forces so you can get shot in Afghanistan or whatever. So mm -hmm. on the one hand, they're never going to let people just leave. They're, the ideology makes them crazy. They're not, it's not, they, they, they hate us and they want us to be around at the same time. It's very, it's resentment, just deep down, sheer, unrelenting resentment. So national divorce isn't possible on that ground. And I would say the second point is, this is our country. My ancestors have lived on this continent for damn near 400 years. Wow. And I don't want to leave. I don't want to yeah. go anywhere else. This is my country. Um, and especially the people who came later, you know, you know, if, you're, you know if, you, if, you, if your family's only been here for uh, 100 years, you can totally become an American. But there's another group of people just straight up like, I don't want to assimilate. I hate the people here before. I hate you. And my answer to that is um, you, you need to either become an American and love the country that's here or you need to leave. You're welcome to extricate yourself from the American uh, you know, nation and homeland and go somewhere else if you hate it so much. But what I don't think the right should buy into is saying, well, we should just let these resentful losers get their piece of the pie. They don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. You didn't, you know, after the American Revolution, I think, um, I forget what the exact numbers are. The Tories, those who supported Britain, it was like, you are no longer welcome here. Done. Goodbye. And by the way, you're not taking all your land and property with you when you go. Very harsh, but the attitude of the Americans was right. It was like, we created this country. It's ours. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not simply an ethno state. It's, it's, it's founded on these very clear principles about we want to be free and left alone and mm -hmm. Republican government. And um, if you're not on board with that project, then, um, you know, you're welcome to go find a different social compact to be a part of. So I think the right should inculcate the attitude of we're taking it all back. It's our country. We're taking it back. Resentful losers um, have two options. You can get on board with living in a free country where people respect one another and respect each other's rights, or you can go somewhere else and take your seething uh, resentment with you. So I think, you know, Americans can get along of all different kinds of creeds and backgrounds, but with a very clear understanding of this country means something. And it's not just a melting pot of random um, resentment and, and, and ideology. It's, it's, we have a definable culture and history and, 
you're welcome to be a part of it, but you know, you, you're not going to get, you know, split us apart. You know, I'm not going to just leave like, Oh, I'm just giving up. Like, no, 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 nope, 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 nope. I'm going to fight you tooth and nail. Um, 12 generations of my ancestors have died here. I'm going to die here. That's the goal. It'll be, <laughs> you know, if I have anything to say about it, it'll be my yeah. country, same as it was. So that's, you know, my, my basic kind of inc- instinct toward the national divorce talk. No, and I love it too, because I, I, you know, I've got a little brother up in Portland and I lived in LA a couple of years. And I think about how beautiful the West Coast is. I think about California and the Pacific yeah. Northwest. And these idiots, these absolute just crazies have taken, and, and, and their levels of crazy are like, I mean, they're, they're getting worse and worse. I hear about it up in Portland. Oh, Would yeah. we concede the most beautiful areas of the country to these people who have never, they don't know what a physical confrontation even looks like. They're troublemakers. Right. They're big right. talkers on social media, but they've never actually been physically reprimanded or disciplined in any such way. I mean, if they're aching for a fight, I mean, they, they honestly, I think they'd get just absolutely de- demolished in about two seconds. So, um, yeah, and the, the point I would make on that, it's like, yeah. well, the way to keep the way to keep this is the, the, one of the most awful things about our time is people who are total losers for whatever reason, whether by nature, by decision, by, um, you know, whatever it is, losers are no longer used to be if you were weak, you kind of were your attitude was, I should be nice to people. I should be kind hearted. Absolutely. I should make the best of what I've got. You know, all of us have different, um, uh, th- we're all imperfect in some way. So one way of looking at your defects is to say, I'm going to become better. Um, I'm going to make peace with my defects. I'm going to be nice to other people, especially if I'm dependent on them. In our time, seething, unrelenting resentment and the expectation of these strong people are going to take care of me. This is part of my argument to young men who are strong, full of life. Do not serve this regime. Do not let Antifa weirdos use you to enforce their will and resist when you have the chance. And um, very powerful if you, you know, oppose, oppose this. This system cannot survive without the um, without the heartland, without the kind of heartland American type who just is, you know, oftentimes has a long history in the country or really loves it. you know, people who aren't resentful about, you know, all my ancestors were immigrants and they were, you know, hated. I've just kind of made peace. Like, yep, you know, there are problems and we're at peace with uh, being in America. We really like the country. That that type should be rewarded and honored. And uh, the resentful loser types should be opposed at every every turn. And I think we could win if we do that. Yeah, I think so, too. And I think there's that guy. It, it's you know, there's this quiet compliance of the regular guy, the common guy that it, it lives in the American heartland. He's a blue collar yeah. worker and he just wants to be left alone. He wants to, you know, go, you know, hard, you know, honest day's work, honest day's wage, you know, and just have a simple, pleasant life. And once that guy gets pissed off enough and he gets angry, that's whenever you're really going to see, you know, impactful change. And I think we're kind of seeing it going on in Canada yeah. right now with these truckers, you know, you know, Canada yeah. is, is 38 million people. They want to, bring in, you know, a hundred, you know, 400,000 people every year. They want to be by a hundred million people by the end of 2100. And so I look at these white truckers and that's who it is. It's white guys. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's blue collar white guys that are saying enough is enough. We're not going to go for these mandates. And I think these poor guys are paying taxes and working their ass off to keep the lights on, to keep the stock, sh- the shelf stocked. And meanwhile, Canada is bringing in all these immigrants and giving them free money. Yeah, the Chinese I, are just buying up your housing market. So now you can't afford a home. Well, it's good for the market. Green line go up, blah, 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 GDP. That's all. And I frankly, you know, 
that's some bullshit. I'm just going to say that right now. <laughs> Maybe you have to edit that out in post-production. It's yeah. bullshit. And yeah. that's not that this, and, and the, the regime is just a grinding pump, like propaganda. Like you should not be, you're a nativist. You hate whatever. Um, and I, you know, I don't hate people, but what I want is to have a country and I want to be allowed to grill. And your point is right. There is this populist energy. What is lacking is the leader is someone who says, I am going to be, I'm going to direct this towards some great end. Trump really tried in 2015-16 to do that. He was mm -hmm. thwarted at every turn. And in some ways, this maybe I would say tragic flaw, just his inclination still toward an inability to, to reconcile himself to how corrupt things have become, even knowing that he knows there's bad, you know, it's bad. But, you know, his faith in the generals, uh, uh, just a huge problem. And that just reflects a generational understanding. And what I'm saying is yeah, we need young, vital leaders on the right. And if a conservative organization, donors should pledge themselves to identifying those types and then promoting them and being like, we need you to go lead the future in, in terms of recovering the country and to make right. that the project. And that could be very successful. And I think I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. I'm white-pilled. I'm, I'm always, I'm always like, hey, I'm a happy warrior. I'm a great. I'm having a great time. I'm winning, even when I take L's. They're always a W in the end. You can't stop me. That's my, uh, that's my attitude, and it's been proven right so far. So, no, I mean, inculcate you, that, dude. You bring a tremendous amount of enthusiasm, intensity, and it's unrelenting, and you're not going to stop. And you know, you're coming on shows like Thank this. You. you know, I heard yeah. you on Alex Kachuda and. It's just, I know you're never going to, and I don't know if this is the right time to ask you, you don't have yeah. any future political aspirations, do you? Well, I mean, the political aspiration <laughs> that I've had just consistently is I want to make my country a better place and I want to save it from these degenerate elites. So whatever avenue will help toward that end, that's what I'm focused on. So this woke military stuff had an opportunity to really make something of it. That opportunity is still playing out. Um, so, you know, my political aspiration is I want People running for office and, you know, Republicans running for office to take the ideas that I'm um, working on that I thought are really important. I want them to engage with those ideas and make them a bedrock of, of what they're doing. So, you know, Afghanistan War Commission, I called for this in a piece. I think we need one. So, you know, if you're a staffer or someone listening to this interview, then make it happen. Fulfill my political aspiration, which is <laughs> listen to what I'm saying. Make this something. I'm just telling you, I'm giving free consulting advice. So if it's wrong, you didn't lose any money. I think woke military attacking these institutions is a winning strategy. And just pointing out, the nation and the state are at war. The state is at war with the nation. And that means we have to um, undo uh, a significant, sizable portion of the modern state and make it do its job which is protect ordinary people. So that, that is the aspiration. So I'm always, if you're a Senator Congressman, you want to talk, you want to hear my ideas. I'm always here. I can take five minutes of your time and just say, I think this is a winning thing. You know, if Donald Trump called me today, it was like, I would fly, I would pay for my own flight to Mar-a-Lago to have five minutes with Trump and just tell him, Trump, you got to focus on the woke military and just concentrate on foreign policy. Win one battle win one battle yeah and then we can go on and do great things and that's you know that's that's what i'm trying to do
very openly. And, and somebody pay this man. His advice is well worth it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. if this is what you're yeah, hearing over so. the course of less than an hour, right. imagine right. all the other things he could he could be yeah. talking about. I, I just, you know? I'm going to bet on myself, you know, seven days out of the week, you know. If I didn't, I wouldn't write, you know. Hey, wait, we have to eat. We have to put that something was, on the table, right? right? That's I mean, right. That's right. eventually you got to monetize yeah. something. I mean, that's kind of how yeah, we yeah. feel. But listen, I want to cover one last thing with you sure. and let you on your way. We really do appreciate your time. But one of the things that, you know, we're um, focused on is building a, I would say a new economic ecosystem. I really do. One of the big issues I see on the right is um, we don't keep currency in our own pockets. We don't circulate currency with each other. So, you know, we go and, and this really is an issue for the right. Um, you know, we don't boycott companies. The left, if they know a company is aligned with the right, 41% of Democrats will boycott that company. If you look on the right, it's something like 7 8%. It's paltry. It's a small yeah. number of people. And so when I think about, you know, currency is the transfer of energy. We need yeah, to circulate right. that amongst each other. We need to patronize yeah. right-owned businesses. We need to, you know, support our friends in any way we possibly can. And I don't really know how we're going to do this. I, I, there's going to be platforms that emerge. People have tried to do it. Yeah. But I think it's we have to find ways to opt out of the system, you know, little by little by little to where if we can, you know, yeah. not use Amazon for something and we can use a local small business yeah. um, you know, service provider. I, I think that's something we need to focus on and circulate currency with each other. Do you think we can build, you know, a, a separate economic ecosystem or is that going to is that too herculean of a task well i think you could try it it could be successful but they're going to go after that you know it's like bitcoin right. i i think i explained bitcoin to me and he it just he gave great explanation of it i thought that's awesome i totally wish that would be successful but they do not want that to succeed and the regime will go hard to preserve its economic standing doesn't mean it's not worth doing i think is that going to be decisive i tend to incline towards spiritual and political warfare against these people. Yeah. The economics is part of that. And at a most basic level, good for the individual. You know, this just goes down to economics is really about, you know, the household and what you value. And I value friendship and community. So in Hillsdale, you know, my wife and I looking to buy meat from local butcher, uh, buying milk from, from a local dairy, um, yes, buying fresh fruit, you know, uh, yes. making beef tallow. That's you know, a thread I did really. It's like, you can do <laughs> right. a lot that's pulling you out of the system. It, now, is that sort of Benedict option going to save America? I don't think so. You're going to have to fight these people directly and take them on. But there are ways to you know, build these networks and not in a cringe way, but in a sort of like, we are neighbors. We like each other. I have real friends in real life. And mm -hmm. I can't tell people how valuable that was during the lockdowns, um, just having real friendship that, that means something. And, and so to that extent, I think, yeah, we can create these communities. We can create that. It's not an end unto itself. It's not going to win the war um, in the same way like becoming trad or having a bunch of kids is not going to solve the political crisis. But it will more than anything else, make your day-to-day -day life better. And I think people absolutely should, should incline that way if they can. I think that's excellent advice because you're not, a lot of people want to believe in the one thing, like it's yeah. Bitcoin. Bitcoin is going to somehow do everything yeah. for us, do all the heavy lifting. Right, right, and if right. somebody puts a, but listen, if somebody puts a gun to your head and says, give me your private keys, which could possibly happen, you're going to have to do something about it. You're going to have yeah. to you either give it up or you defend yourself. And so I think 
it's a really good point where you need to do things to opt out of the current system yeah. to weaken it, but understand that's not a cure-all. It is going to take, you know, force against force. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's uh, and I just want to be honest, there is yeah. no one weird trick to save Western civilization. Not yeah. how that works. There are ways and there are things more effective than others. No one weird trick. So you got to do multiple things. You got to be you gotta multiple irons in the fire. And, um, this is all part of one piece, I think. No, I, I totally agree. And I think that's a great place to leave it. It's been yeah. an awesome conversation. We really have yeah, you joining really us. Want to have you back sometime yeah, in the future. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to leave the listeners with where they well, can I find think, you? You know, absolutely. You can find me on Telegram. Uh, just if you search for my name. And then um, that'll be the place if I get banned on Twitter again. Uh, you can find <laughs> me there. Uh, I think it's probably safe to say my username here. It doesn't matter if I get banned. Uh, you can find yeah. me at joesamas.com. Uh, I'm publishing under the under the under the radar of the regime. So encourage people to follow me on social media. I write um, basically every other week. I write a column at American Greatness. Um, you know, I, of course, I love to have readers. Love it when people share those pieces. And then, more than anything else, tell people carry on the spiritual war yourself. Do the work. If I get banned, I, I cannot be the indispensable man here. I need people around me who see Absolutely. and take these ideas and say, I can implement them. I think it's worth doing. Um, you know, if you don't believe me, come ask and, and I'll provide the evidence and just do something, get in the game, get in the game, get out of, you know, the rut. If it's, you know, pornography, alcohol, dependence, um, failures in relationships, failures in business, you've got to get out of those places, find friends, eat better, lift weights, fight the spiritual war. It's that, it's that simple. It's, it's, it's hard, but simple. So that's that's my parting sort of advice there, or, you know, call to action, if you will. Well, that's outstanding advice. Uh, Josiah Lippincott, we want to thank you for joining the yeah, base. Thank you so today. much, Alex. I appreciate it so much. Have a good one, man. Hope to talk to you soon. Awesome.